to The Founding Women. I'm Tracy Wilson-Rossman, and I'm here with my co-host, Shelly Hump. Shelly, it's nice to speak with you. Always good to catch up. Nice to be back. I'm really super excited about the guests that we have today, and um, our guest has a particular honor of being our first male guest as well. That is true. That is true. Wow. I feel very, I feel very honored. <laughs> yes. And I also appreciate it. So Jonathan Grecian is our guest and um, I actually cold called him through LinkedIn based on an article that was sent to me by my board member slash mentor slash friend. Um, and I read it and I was like, we need to have him on. So um, I don't know if Jonathan knows that whole story, but I'm a fangirl. So. Well, I think it goes to show that um, a well-written cold email or any kind of cold outreach, and this is something that we really preach to a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with. You know, if you can reach out to, to anybody, you know, with a very clear, concise message, you know, tools like LinkedIn or even most people's emails are not hard to find or guess right? You can, you can pretty much connect with anybody. And that is what happened here. So before we get into it, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that you are the co-founder of the Founder Institute, which is the world's largest pre-seed startup accelerator. And since 2009, he's grown and scaled the organization to chapters in over 185 cities and 60 countries, which have produced over 4,000 portfolio companies with nearly a billion dollars in venture funding. And in one of those uh, happy coincidences, I did not know this, but uh, when I was cold calling Jonathan, but I'm actually going to be on a panel um, later this month uh, for the Philadelphia uh, Founder Institute. So our, our tentacles are far and wide. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just uh, some of those statistics are our our stats are always are always increasing. So some of those are a little bit outdated. We're we're over six thousand companies now, nearly oh, two wow. billion in funding, two hundred cities. Almost last I checked, it was at one ninety nine. So maybe I shouldn't call that just yet. And uh, over one hundred countries around the world. Well, that's amazing. Unbelievable, amazing. And and I have known of the Founder Institute for a while. When I was first kind of considering launching a company, I had really learned about the Founder Institute by just reading a lot of the content that you put out. And I learned a lot about kind of launching a startup and things to consider um, from the Founder Institute. I think it's an amazing resource. And again, one of the first, you know, accelerators I learned about in my, in my journey of founding a startup, but, you know, Jonathan, I would really love to know a little bit about you and what did you do before the Founder Institute? And, you know, just tell us a little bit about, about yourself and kind of um, where, where you were in life before you decided to build the, the world's largest pre-seed accelerator. Sure. So, um, and Tracy, by the way, I don't know if, if you were in Pennsylvania because uh, you mentioned Philly, but I'm I'm a Villanova alumni, right. um, and like like most people, I I grew up just outside of New York City. Like like most people, you know, I graduated, I finished my undergrad, didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I moved back to New York and uh, just was going to NYU uh, business school, and I decided, hey, you know, I while I'm doing this, I should just get an internship. I need to make some extra money, so I found some internship. Uh, for an online gaming company and never been like the biggest gamer, but it sounded like an interesting opportunity. And, and honestly, that was a fortuitous 
thing. I found it on Craigslist, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember I almost didn't even go to the interview. You know, I was just a dumb kid who just graduated college. Uh, but I ended up getting into this startup at honestly just the right place at the right time. And I had no idea that I wanted to get into startups. I was I had always been entrepreneurial. My, my mother even joked at my wedding, just all the little hustles that I had going on when I was a kid. Um, sometimes got myself into trouble. But I uh, it, it's I ended up uh, becoming one of the first employees of this company that um, and because it was this typical startup environment where, you know, there's just so many things to do in any given day that there really is an opportunity for people to step up in the company and, you know, take on roles that they have no business doing. You know what I mean? Just, just because by pure uh, willpower and just, just the fact that, Hey, this is something that needs to get done. Nobody here knows how to do it. Does somebody want to learn how to do it? And I was like, I just kept raising my hand. Right. So I, I ended up running all, all of marketing and content for that company. We raised $16 million and, and exited it a couple of years later. Um, so after that, um, the, the reason why FI started in particular was the CEO of that startup that I joined. His name's Adeo Resi, and now my co-founder in the Founder Institute. We had some venture capitalists that didn't treat us very well, okay? And this was back, you know, so we're going back in time here. Uh, we're talking to 2006, 2007. So especially in New York, where in general, the, the VCs seem to be you know, they're just a little bit more financially kind of Wall Streety, right? Than uh, maybe some other regions like California. And there was a lot of them were still reeling from that dot com uh, bust in, in 2000. So all of the power was in the investors. Like you couldn't badmouth an investor, you can't say something bad about an investor, or literally it would get back to them. Like it was this, you know, the old boys club of like old boys clubs where they had all the power and there were just terrible terms in these agreements. Like we had investors throw clipboards at us in board meetings, no. just berate us in ways that you, you can't even imagine. So we started this, this crappy little website. It's still going just kind of on its own at this point called thefunded.com, which was essentially a subpoena proof review site where entrepreneurs could share anonymous information about VCs. And it literally was subpoena proof because we built the technology to the point where if somebody like we had no idea what, who somebody was once they got approved into the system. Right. So we got plenty of cease and desist letters from VCs and we literally would just send us send them our technical spec and be like, here you go. We don't know who that is, so we can't do anything about it. Um, so anyway, that opportunity where. You know, we created this website. It got a bunch of press. Like uh, my co-founder was in Wired Magazine as a result of it because we were all very secretive about it for a while. It's, what we realized was that a lot of people were applying to become members of this website to leave reviews on venture capitalists. And, you know, we we had no interest in it becoming like a VC bashing website, right? Like it was just more like, Hey, here's a place to share information. If you are, if you have raised funding or if you are actively raising funding, but what we realized with all these founder applications was that probably about 90% of the people who thought they were ready to raise funding uh, or who were already actively raising funding were not, were nowhere near the point in their business where they should be raising funding. Right. Um, so that was sort of, kind of this proverbial gap in the market that we saw where we're like, okay, if 90% of the people trying to come into our website, we don't have a product for, um, you know, how do we try to help them solve this problem of, of getting to, you know, kind of a quote unquote fundable company. 
And, and that's really where the, the Founder Institute was born, was to solve that problem. We kicked around a lot of ideas. We were like, okay, let, let's maybe do an online subscription service or whatever. But eventually, we just we settled on, let's get something done quickly, like in the next six months, just to test it out. So we found an unused classroom in Stanford, um, got a bunch of mentors together and put together a program, which was really, you know, as a pre-seed accelerator, think of it as a you know, I mean, a lot of people have heard of the Y Combinators, Techstars, 500 Startups of the World. We're for the people that are several steps earlier, right? Um, a lot of times, even employ people that still have full-time jobs and don't necessarily want to uh, want to quit their job yet and go all in because they're not sure if they're if they're onto something, right? Or, or, or uh, you know, teams of one or two founders who are just at those earliest stages. They really have nothing to show for it yet. They're nowhere near being able to raise funding because they they don't, you know, they're still at that very early stage. How do we get them on a path where they can focus on the right things to get to either the point where they can raise funding or or uh, or build a sustainable business? So I think it it was one of these things where it literally just one idea led to the next, which led to the next. And you just kind of see these opportunities and, you know, we just try to solve a problem. And that problem that we saw was that 90% of the people coming to our website thought they were ready to raise funding. They thought that was their next step when it was probably like their hundredth next step. Right. That's really, you know, to me, amazing that back in 2009, you kind of had the foresight for that because, you know, even today, right, there are a ton of resources now when you're looking to found a company, I mean, you can Google things and find, you know, different articles. I mean, there are basically, you know, maps that will help you determine what to do next. But back in 2009, right? I mean, I can't imagine there was anywhere near as much information. And like I said, even now, with all the resources that we have, the Founder Institute is still really necessary because I think we have a little bit of an issue now where there's too much information, right? You don't know what's what's good advice and what's bad advice and whatnot. But I mean, starting a company in 2009, it just it's such a valuable thing to have somewhere to go to say, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if I'm ready to build to raise funding or like how do I get to the point where I'm ready to raise funding? And there are just so many things to consider and think about. And so I mean, what a what a terrific business idea. And I love how it came out of just kind of understanding the founder journey and that people really didn't know what they were doing or, or how to get to that point of kind of readiness for, for investment. So that's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and, and over time it has evolved where, you know, now as we, as we started to expand from that one classroom to all over the world, now it really is, is, you know, we still provide that core value, which is to help you get to, you know, build a fundable company basically. But we built a lot of other support systems in place now, and, and a, a lot of it now is also just helping people connect globally because we have all these chapters around the world. But um, I do agree that it is, you know, there are there is so much free information online right now, and um, you can DIY anything, right? I just I went to a housewarming party with a friend yesterday who, during the pandemic, completely remodeled their house on their own using YouTube, <laughs> right? So, and they did a pretty damn good job. Um, so, you know, you really can uh, find so much information on the internet. It is just, yeah, it's, it's, I think the biggest challenge with entrepreneurs is that every moment that you're spending on your business is you're one moment closer to death, right? It's either, it literally is either you're about to, you're trying to start this company and, you know, you, you just know, okay, if this doesn't, if this doesn't happen in the next six months, then I'm just, it's not going to happen, right? Or literally you have a runway of, of, money in the bank 
So it really is just, it's so much opportunity cost within the eyes of an entrepreneur. Like what you're spending your time on is so incredibly important because, you know, it's just a double whammy. If you're spending your time on something that won't create impact, number one, it won't create impact. But the number two, you, you know, you've now wasted uh, a bunch of the leash that you have before your, your journey may come to an end. Right. Well, Jonathan, like any startup, which the Founders Institute was a startup at one point, um, what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were launching? It sounds like you found the founders pretty quickly, but you know what happened after that next class? And how about those of the advisors? How easy or hard was it to find them? Sure. So we had, yeah, we started at a place where we had a, a decent amount of our initial audience, right? Because there were these people trying to come into the funded.com that just weren't ready. But a lot of that is like, you know, in the beginning, and, and this is what we preach to entrepreneurs in our program too, like, don't think about it as some big overarching company, right? Just think about it as a project. Our project was to just hey, we, we think we can probably get 50 to 100 founders to like do this program. So let's just get it off the ground. And the day one of this program is in three months, right? Like that's what we did. And within that three month period, we we got everything together. We hustled, got it all together. So honestly, doing all that, like, you know, it was probably, the, it's not saying it was easy, but it was probably the equivalent of, you know, maybe putting like a conference together or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, we were looking at this as this one kind of program and, to be honest, we didn't know what it would look like long term. We spent a lot of money on like a professional video crew because we thought maybe we'd, we'd be able to like sell the videos of the of the talks or something. You, you know, right. we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Right. <laughs> um, but what what happened was that um, after we ran that first program in Silicon Valley and Udemy, for example, which is a public company now, it's the world's largest source for online courses, was part of that program, and a lot of other big companies. Um, we got a lot of press and then people started contacting us to, to bring it to their cities. Right. So that's where we're like, okay, we're onto something here. And, and that's when we started really having this global focus and that's where the challenges began. Right. So I, I think um, a lot of people, it, it, there's the saying in startups, which is do things that don't scale. Right. In the beginning stages, all you're trying to do is trying to solve a problem for a customer. You don't have to build some massive website that can, you know, sustain millions of, people and traffic and all this stuff to solve a problem for a customer. We, we started small and then opportunities presented themselves. And really for us, the challenge has been the scaling of it, operating in all of these different cities, different jurisdictions, legal, cultural. I mean, I've learned so much <laughs> cultural differences uh, around the world and, and, you know, quality control as you get bigger, right? I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and Honestly, being an entrepreneur, I, I sort of had to train myself out of being a perfectionist because I feel like that was counterproductive and it caused me a lot of stress. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. um, you know, but yes, yeah, scaling the business, trying to solve the problem for a customer, you know, at scale in a lot of different cities and cultures, that's really where a lot of the issues came into play. And, and we also, we never took venture funding. So it has been a, you know, we put a little money in ourselves and that was pretty much it. Um, so since day one, we, we've been sustainable. Um, you know, I think it's still to this day, we haven't taken venture funding. I mean, given that the founding story, maybe that's not surprising. <laughs> to, um, so, so yeah, a lot of times it's just, you know, in the early days, it's, it's just getting, getting to payroll and stuff, right? Because we did not want to take venture funding. We had a vision and we did not want it to be meddled with 
um, by anybody else. You know, I, fi- I I love the do things that don't scale. You know, it's a different story sometimes when you're talking to venture capitalists. Um, but, um, you know, they, they love to say that in articles, but then when you're actually doing it, um, they, they don't love that. But I, you know, obviously you've had a lot of evolution in your business since 2009. Um, I, I find it really interesting too, in the, you know, you're going to different cities and doing this. I mean, how did you evolve into like, cause it, I think you can capture lightning in a bottle, right. With like certain people in one city and create this energy and teach these people, but taking that to an entirely different ecosystem has got to be incredibly difficult. You know, tell us about that. Tell us about like the decision to take it from one city to the next. And, and, and how did you do that? How did you find the individuals to kind of teach the course and, and really create that kind of magic in, in another place? I wish I could give myself credit here. We had no vision. Um, it's, <laughs> it was, it was all inbound, right? So that's kind of the mess. It's like if you you focus on solving a problem for a customer really, really well, other opportunities will present themselves. And that's that's literally what happened. The first city we ju- we moved to or, or expanded to, I should say, was San Diego because somebody in San Diego reached out to us like, hey, how do I bring this here? And we're like, huh, good question, <laughs> right? And then we start building the systems and the technologies and all this stuff to make that happen. And then we just kept going. I, I like... 90% of the markets that we've expanded to, to this day, are were just totally through inbound. And it, it literally, we were in Kabul, Afghanistan as a chapter uh, before we were in London, oh. right? So it's not like we looked at this map like it was a risk board or something and we're like, okay, we need to, we need to go conquer this market or whatever, right? It literally was just, let's do... Let's try to do a good job at, the, at who our customers were are right now. And then, and then those opportunities present themselves. People would apply to become local leaders and bring them, bring the program to their city. And then we built systems and training and technologies to try to, you know, so that we can scale these programs and, and not, um, you know, take all the variables out of the equation and, and just let the local leaders focus on bringing together some good mentors and, and you know, uh, bringing together some good partners and, and helping to run a program that way versus really putting too much of a load on their plate. So that's where it is. Like it just it evolved based on need. And then you know, so that was the first need. And then the second need, we're like, wow, we've been running a program for a few years. Now we have all these graduates, right? And like, and these graduates need help. <laughs> so so then that was like the next evolution. And then and then the next evolution after that, you know, was all these graduate support programs and 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 investor networks. And then probably the next evolution after that was wow, we're in so many cities and they want to connect with each other. How do we connect them? Right? So that was the next evolution. So it's just I, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs they try to overplan. You know, you can't you can't plan. All you can do is is like we we have a saying in FI2. It's it's we call it a it's like that's a Monday problem. Right. And generally speaking, what that means is like, look, is that a problem? Yes, it is. But right now it's Tuesday or it's Wednesday or it's Thursday or it's Friday or it's whatever. It's not a problem you need to worry about right now. Right. There'll be a time and a place when you'll need to worry about that problem. And it'll be very apparent (laughs) that you need to worry about that problem. Right. There'll be no doubt in your mind that this is a problem that you need to solve. But right now, what the problem that you need to solve is, is, you know, is probably a lot more elemental so just focus on, you know, one thing at a time. And a lot of times those, it's very rarely where the initial idea and what you think the business will look like in five years or whatever, if you're successful, 
like literally it's probably less than one percent of the time like that actually happens it's always it's an evolution of of an initial idea over time and that evolution of that idea is you know it's based the founders accepting feedback and, and taking inputs from the market and then adjusting from there. And I think, you know, that's such fundamental advice that gets lost as we go out for funding and we have pitch decks and we have to show them to people and they're asking us to have the vision in five years. Yeah. And it is so incremental as we are listening to the marketplace. I mean, I'm I'm going through that right now. So I think just one one thing there, Tracy, that I tried it's there a lot of the time we feel like we're sort of um translators between investors and founders right when investors want to see it's you know some investors want to see okay like exit exit scenarios exit plans or mm-hmm. you know yeah what's your vision in five years and everybody's going to have a hockey chick start of growth right that's fine <laughs> um you know they don't they don't really care at least the good ones don't care about the you know oh oh this this year four projection is unrealistic whatever right they want to make sure that number one you're thinking long term because their whole their whole livelihood as as an investor is long term right right so they want to make sure that you're thinking long term and number two they know that you know just with basic power law with investors that the vast majority of any returns they have are going to come from less than ten percent of their investments so they want to see that you have a, a quote unquote vision of where the world is going that's a little bit bigger than your company that they can kind of get on board with and be like you know what yeah you're right in five to ten years this is going to be a massive market because these consumer trends are changing or, or whatever it is and this is a business you know there's this wave coming the wave is just starting to crest or it's not it's it's a little bump that you see 100 miles offshore nobody's really noticing yet right but it's coming and my company is a part of that, you know, and it, it trips up a lot of entrepreneurs where they're like, oh, well, I'm supposed to like look at all of these different things and talk about six different products that I may have. Right. But I, at the end of the day, I think most investors just want to see that you're thinking sort of in terms of systems and in trends and long term macroeconomics uh, versus just, um, you know, d- just the, the little project that you're working on. And, and when it comes to that little project, we always like just one solve one problem for one customer with one product that has one killer feature and one revenue stream. Like that's sort of our mantra. And there's a lot of ones in there, so maybe it sounds simple, but doing that well is extremely hard. And most entrepreneurs try to try to do that across multiple audiences and multiple products. Oh, I have a suite of products. I have a, you know, I'm gonna do this for this, this person, this person, this person, and this person, right? And I'm gonna make money four different ways, which generally speaking code for investors, okay, it's like, you don't know how to make money. Right? Right. Uh, if you don't have one revenue, it's almost, I don't know if you're NFL fans here, but there's a, there's a saying, it's like, you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one, right? It's so it's, it's kind of like this, uh, this thing. It's like, yeah, if you, if you're really, if you're focusing on four different revenue streams, that means code do investors generally, especially at the early stages is just that, okay, well, that means that you don't have any one revenue stream that's, that's like significant and that's bad. Well, Jonathan, we know that things have changed for startups since you founded, um, and we can talk a little bit about that. But I think, you know, since we're talking about funding, what are some of the changes that you've seen over the last um, umpteen years for startups as they go out for funding? What are you seeing in the market? Uh, A lot of good things, to be honest. Um, 
I mean, there's sort of, it's like when you start so low, there's only one direction to go. Right. So, <laughs> um, so there, there, the amounts, and especially for me, like I've always, when our company got acquired, when our startup got acquired, I worked for a big company. It was called Real Networks. Um, if you guys remember, an internet dinosaur sort of. I think they're still in business, though. I'm not really sure what they do. But they're, you know, my heart is always in the, the earliest stages. So for the earliest stages, the amount of money that has flowed in has been incredible, right? Um, and especially, that was always a trend, right? You started, accelerators were, for a while, the first kind of organizations that would start to fund you know, very small teams of people that had, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars in revenue or whatever, right? You didn't have a lot of options when we first started FI. Um, the angel networks have been professionalized, right? There's a lot of resources out there that are, you know, standard like term sheets and uh, documents like the, like the FAST agreement and um, convertible debt and things like that. So there's been a lot of standardization in the industry and, you know, the good thing is that, and this has kind of always been the case in startups, is that the majority of the time when a founder becomes successful, um, a lot of their wealth will go right back into the startup ecosystem, right, via, via angel investing. So those, those have been sort of these, you know, uh, you know, virtuous loops, so to speak, um, for sure. And I think because of COVID also, uh, a lot of these borders have been broken down. If you look at the last few years, essentially VCs have just been minting money, right? And the people that invest, that give VCs the money for them to invest, which are like the trillion dollar players, pension funds, things like this, large private equity funds, they're like, wow, it seems like nobody could do any wrong in VC. So let's start getting into it ourselves. And that's where you saw organizations like a Tiger Global or SoftBank and you know, there's no shortage of these. You you had these these organizations with trillions of dollars that would usually farm out hundred million dollar investments to other people. Now they they came directly into the market. So this forced a lot of pressure on VCs and other institutions to just keep going earlier and earlier and earlier in terms of startups. So, you know, this is a good thing. <laughs> it created some uh, some extremely unrealistic valuations that. We're now seeing the the downsides of, and namely of, of mass layoffs of you know of a lot of employees that that have done no wrong. It was just poor planning and and you know hyperinflation of of valuations and things like that. But I, I think at the end of the day, more early stage, more idea stage entrepreneurs are getting funded, and this generally is a good thing. And and more people are in the funding market, which is also a good thing because it just creates more competition. Now, it also means that it creates more kind of stupidity, so to speak, <laughs> um, right? Where there's a lot of like tourist investors is, is what a lot of people have been calling them lately. But at the end of the day, it just creates more competition and more options. So we're in a much better place right now for funding, I mean, exponentially, right? Um, uh, the early stage entrepreneurs than we were, uh, yeah, when we started FI. That, that's a really, you know, I mean, it's, I feel like it's been a really a hallmark, you know, what, uh, 12, 13 years since you started this, this business. And there's just been so much transformation in the industry. And I'm wondering if at all, like the type of startup, right, that benefits from the Founder Institute, has that changed? What, you know, as you look at it today, right, like what type of characteristics 
if there are people listening who have a startup and they're considering joining an accelerator or becoming a part of the Founder Institute network, you know, what what type of characteristics are you looking for in, in startups? And when, you know, when should individual founders start thinking about joining something like Founder Institute? Sure. I'll keep it brief here. And, and anybody listening can go to fi.co to check it out. You're even welcome to email me. I have the second shortest email on the planet. It's J, the letter J is in Jonathan at fi.co. We, we focus mostly on uh, pre-seed and idea stage entrepreneurs. So it's um, you know, we'll take somebody that just has an idea who's still working at a big company or whatever, who still, still has a full-time job or hasn't even incorporated yet. Um, that's kind of the earliest we'll go. And then the latest we'll go is like uh, maybe a very small team that has a little bit of revenue and a product, right? Um, we're, we're just we're just like the stage or two before a uh, your typical seed accelerator, like a, a Techstars or a Y Combinator. That, that's where we operate. And because we operate there, uh, there are so many variables involved. Most amazing business ideas can sound really stupid in the beginning, right? Um, so we are, a lot of people say they're founder focused. We are very much founder focused because a lot of people that come into our program don't even have a company yet. So we can't even be company focused. Um, so uh, we actually have like a task that, that really is um based on social science that we've been using and, and collecting data on for the last 13 years. And, and it's really more looking for the characteristics of good entrepreneurs that we have found by basically testing that data across real world results with the 6,000 companies that we have, et cetera. You know, so just, it, it's a lot of the stuff is not, is not too mind blowing that, that I'll share, but you know, just resilience, um, people that can learn really quickly. It's not, you know, being a great entrepreneur is not about IQ. It's literally as an entrepreneur, every single day you're just learning. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, I hate contracts. But it's just like, okay, well, you got to learn. Yeah. <laughs> to, Too bad. Maybe, maybe, Who likes yeah, contracts? Maybe not, maybe, not learn how to, maybe not learn how to love contracts, but you need what we, we call it is the founder's, founder's proficiency, right? Um, so that that's where yeah it's the and that's something called fluid intelligence that we test for so you know we're looking more for uh for people with those raw traits because we operate at such a stage where you know honestly try anybody trying to judge a business idea at that stage you know you can point them in the right direction but so i mentioned at the beginning of um your introduction that i read an article that you wrote and i think that it's really, really important for us to talk a little bit about what's happening right now. You know, there was all this money, everybody looked, everyone's a unicorn, everyone's getting these crazy valuations. And I'm putting everyone in quotes right now. And now, you know, we're hearing you need to cut back, you're spending too much money. It's and we're going into a period that's going to be harder to raise money. Um, but you, you know, you're you have a different viewpoint, which is it's a great time to be founding a company right now. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, your reasoning behind that? Um, I'll start meta. Economic downturns are always the best time to start a company. And I and I, I eat what I what I preach, right? Uh, we were founded in April of 2009, which if you look at any chart, any financial indicator, that was literally like the bottom of the housing, the housing crisis. So, you know, I, I like that. That's when we started. And 
it's not only when we started. If you look, if you look at companies that were built in, you know, so go back to the last major economic downturn. It would have been, you know, roughly 2000 to 2002 or so, right? You're going to see the same kind of dynamic. It's when the world changes extremely quickly, and this happened during COVID, right? And maybe it looks like it happened a little too much where we overvalued some companies. But essentially, when things change really quickly, who are the people that are best suited to adapt to that change and build products quickly that conform to changing consumer or business needs? It's always going to be entrepreneurs, always. Every business in the world is trying to, oh, we have a flexible structure. Oh, yeah, we can respond to the market quickly. No, they can't. Even right now, they're still restructuring. They're going through layoffs, right? They're laying off really good people. Just And a lot of the tech businesses that you're seeing, and I think that this is anybody who's in startups and tech, like we're, we're just sort of just like, yeah, obviously that company had to lay off 20% of their workforce. Why the hell did that company have 5,000 employees? That's ridiculous. And the reason why they had 5,000 employees is that some investor, some group of investors in the last year or two told them that they were worth this much money. Or do you expect the entrepreneur to say, no, we're not? <laughs> um, and when you take that money, you, you know, when you take VC money, especially large VC rounds, which has been the hallmark of these last few years in venture capital, you have no choice but to build the, the fastest rocket ship that you can that'll get you to the moon, you know, the day after tomorrow. It's not, no, we're not building it slow and steady here. It's you have to do that because that is the money that has come in. And, and I could boil it down in, into a couple of things. Number one, um, Downturns are always a great time to start companies because of a few reasons. Uh, the first being that big companies can't just can't, can't move fast enough. Um, so when you know things get disrupted, so to speak, like that's the perfect time for entrepreneurs because there's changing customer needs. Big companies can't move fast enough. Entrepreneurs can come in. Number two, amazing people are getting laid off by companies that that didn't pr plan properly. Right. Do you know the number of people right now that are getting, quote unquote, fired that are like rock stars? You know what I mean? Like they're not getting fired because they failed. They're getting fired because their companies failed them. And especially a lot of the senior people that are getting laid off, they're getting some pretty nice packages. Right. So we always find that during these times, uh, startups have access to a lot of talent that they typically would have no business getting access to. Right. So that's a big one. Um, and then the third one is, is really just that the cost of doing business generally goes down. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we saw this during the pandemic. We, we were calling it like the COVID discount. You know, it's, it's when, when times are tough in business, when, you know, you can go to a lot of your business providers, um, you know, accounting firms, law firms, whatever, right? And just talk to them and be like, hey, like, we want to keep you as a customer, but we're going through a hard time right now like everybody else. So, you know, you can go back and you can cut a lot of your business costs to a, a lot smaller. So that that's just, and we were preaching this in the pandemic and then the, you know, the pandemic just blew everything out of proportion to a point where it became unhealthy, the amount of, of money and speculation that went into the market. And all these layoffs that you're seeing right now are just a product of that. It's not like, you know, Zoom uh, is a bad business. It's just Zoom, you know, maybe it's not worth, I don't even know what their valuation was, but I'm sure it was insane. You know, it's just, it's just, it's not worth that amount of money. So the 
the plans to dominate the world and the crazy hiring plans that they had to to pull in these crazy funding rounds are just not realistic. So now we're just scaling that back. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the founders at the earliest stages right now, it's the same thing. Like consumer changes or consumer needs are changing. Business needs are changing. We're all trying to figure out what the hell this hybrid thing means. We're kind of throwing this future of work umbrella over everything. And there's there's so many amazing opportunities in there. Culturally, politically, things are changing extremely quickly. I mean, these all create opportunities for entrepreneurs. It's just entrepreneurs should look at themselves as problem solvers. And when the world changes quickly, there's a lot of new problems to be solved. And there's big businesses or established players, just they, there's no way they can move faster than a startup. And that's why startups can always can always win. There should be no reason why Google can't just like own everything, you know, except maybe like the Justice Department. <laughs> um, but it just saying like realistically speaking, it's they just they can't move fast enough the big companies. So that's why there's always an opportunity for startups to go. The big companies are looking at things that will move the billions of dollars of needles. So startups can always sneak in and solve one problem for one customer kind of underneath their noses and do a really good job at it and then grow organically from there to the point where, you know, a Google or a big company doesn't even know they exist until, you know, sometimes until it's too late, right? Until they're they're th three or four years in and now they've, they've built this amazing community. I love that perspective. Uh, you know, I think the st startups are always afraid of what a big company can do to overtake them or going up against the big companies. But you're, you're absolutely correct in the fact that they can't move quickly. You know, I mean, we work with some really large companies as clients and the amount of time that it takes them to execute even a PO is, is wild. So, you know, it's, it's really some great perspective. And I think that, um, it's always great to incentivize entrepreneurs and people with entrepreneurial mindsets to found a company, you know, start solving problems. Don't wait. Um, it's always a good market to start, start a company if you're solving a real problem for, for a customer. So I think um, that's, that's amazing perspective. I appreciate it. Um, Jonathan, we have, I have a couple of questions. I like just the question I like to ask everyone, because I think it's, it's excellent to discover um, what, you know, what the inspiring people we have on this podcast are, are watching, reading, or listening to right now. So if you could give us some insight into what is, what is, what are you watching, reading, or listening to that's uh, inspiring you, that's helping you in your career, or that's just helping you disconnect a little bit. So this isn't, I, I recently, uh, I'm a, I'm a new father, first time father. I have a, a six month old daughter. Congratulations. So to be honest with you, I'm listening to a lot of twinkle, twinkle, little star. Um, <laughs> and I'm watching, although she loves watching baseball with me, but I, don't know, <laughs> I think she just likes seeing lights on a screen or whatever. Yeah. Um, so th this isn't the best time um, for me where I'm getting a lot of, a lot of time for personal growth, but uh, there there is one book. I mean, just this past weekend, <laughs> I, I kind of took a little uh, did a little trip with with my wife and daughter just to get away because it's been a, a rough couple of months. But um, there uh, there's an author called Jerry Colonna. Um, he's based out here in Colorado. He is there was an organization called uh, Flatiron Ventures who in New York City was sort of like the with Fred Wilson was his co-founder there. Um, was, was a very big organization. And, and now uh, Jerry has, he runs something called Reboot, 
Uh, he's got a, a book called Reboot, and I don't, I don't know what the website is, but essentially, it's it's a it's a leadership book, but it's like a leadership book that's more. His premise is that you can't be a great leader if you don't if you don't have like full transparency into your own strengths and weaknesses. And it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of a combination like uh, mindfulness and leadership kind of book, which I've, I found kind of interesting just because I was, um, I'm CEO of Founders as you now, I took that over last year and, and I was before that I was just, you know, co-founder and sort maybe sort of a co-CEO, but stepping into that role makes things different for sure. You know, I, I strategically planned, uh, you know, wink, wink to, to have my first child right as I got into the CEO role, which yep. was great. Um, of us do that. So it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's been a, uh, yeah, so that that's kind of one thing, but it's taking me very long to get through that book, not because it's not a good book, but just because, you know, there's a, a dirty diaper or something down the hall that I got to deal with. <laughs> well, no doubt you'll learn a lot from your daughter as well. Uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned in parenthood. Um, yeah. You know, I, I had my son two weeks after we launched our software, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, that sounds about right. I'm still learning, and uh, you know, they, they teach you a lot every day. So um, don't don't sell yourself short on that personal growth piece of it. You're growing, I, I assure you. Um, you know, Jonathan, this has been really, really great. I think we've got a lot of just really great insight and input for founders, and we're just really appreciative of having you on the podcast. Um, anyone that is listening can find Founder Institute at fi.co. Uh, Jonathan so graciously gave us his email address earlier. So hopefully you aren't um, bombarded. I don't think we're at the million listener mark quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> now. Um, but, you know, um, honestly, Jonathan, thank you so much um, for for your input and... And your honesty. Yes. So input and honesty, transparency. We always appreciate that. And um, we, we hope to have you on again sometime. Awesome. Thanks for having me. 